0: We took a vacation, and we were able to enjoy ourselves, Santa and I, with our grandson, Hunter, or Buster, and um, Heidi and Robert. It's a real blessing having Buster there. You know, I like to take pictures and post them on Facebook with expressions, and some of you have been following that. And Sylvia put it well. She says he has a very expressive face. And that's fun to capture those expressions and put uh, captions to them. It's, it's fun for me. But uh, one thing about Buster and, and the parents realize this, when, we, when a newborn comes into the family, um, infants, they come in with, uh, with no pretensions, no hiding, no evading. What you see is what you get, what you got. If he's frustrated, you're going to know it. If he's hungry, you're going to know it. If he needs to be changed, you're going to know it. You know, it's not until we get older that things aren't quite as they seem. Because we learn to hide things. We hide our feelings. We hide our shame. We hide our sin. We don't want people to see us for what we're really like, oftentimes. And that doesn't stop at individuals. It continues on into families, churches. Countries, nations. And as I read the news, I see it all over the place. Things aren't quite as they seem. And you have to look a little deeper um, if you want to see the truth. And sometimes it's impossible. And so it grieves me sometimes when people weigh in on something and they really don't know what's behind the scenes Because they they give the impression that they give give approval or endorsement. And I, I work in a highly political environment because I work for the union in an apprenticeship school. And I I tell people I don't like to endorse people (laughs) because you don't know what they believe. You might endorse them and find out they believe in something you really don't and can't agree with as a Christian. So I'd much rather talk about issues than endorsing people. But oftentimes people will endorse something that a person does, but it gives the impression of endorsing that person and everything they do. And that's not good. We're going to see that today. In Jesus' time and through the word of God, there has you have the language of appearance oftentimes, but you have the appearance of things, what things seem like. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about things that aren't really things aren't really always as they seem. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 14. Things aren't always as they seem. We have an expression in the construction industry, and I, I, we try to weed it out of the apprentices and even the journeymen because it's so prevalent. You're on a job site and you're working on a particular project, and, and, uh, and somebody's doing a sloppy job. How's it look? Looks good for my house. I hate that expression because that means up close it looks pretty bad. And that's not what we're about. That's not what I'm about. I I like to do good work and I like to teach to do good work. But, you know, it looks good from our house. That expression is going to you're going to see it in different places in the sermon because because there's a lot of things that are going on today that looks good for my house. We're not in the middle of it. You know, Um, over there with ISIS taking over parts of Iraq, parts of Syria, people dying every day. Looks good for my house. It doesn't look good at all. It's just from my house, I can't see it. So life's great here. And there are people suffering on many fronts in the world today. And it's easy to put it out of our mind because we can't see it from our house. Things seem to be all right, but there's an undercurrent. We're marching toward the end times, so things aren't quite as they seem. In Mark 14, reading in verse 56, it says, For many were giving false testimony against him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another one without hands. Made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In Matthew, it says the son of God. And in Matthew, they use the word "adjure." You see. When the high priest adjured a testimony from an individual, it'd be a sin not to answer. So he was really obligated to answer because he was sinless. So he does answer. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's how it seemed to them. And some men spat in his face and blindfolded him and began to beat him with their fists and to say prophesy. And officers received him with slaps in the face. How does it seem to you? That's what that's what they were asked. Well, things can have an appearance that don't. Really tell the truth. How, how, what, what is the Christian's uh, final seat of authority? What, what, way in which, what is the way in which we determine what's true and what's not true? Well, if you're a Christian, you would have to say it's the word of God. What does God say? And though all men be found liars, God be true. And so when we look through God's word and the word of God, we could see everything through a filter that will change what seems to be true into what is really true. What does God say about the Lord Jesus? Of Jesus, he said, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. See, the truth was, Jesus was God. And so he was telling the truth. It would have been blasphemy if he was not telling the truth, but he was. But it seemed to them blasphemy. It seemed to them blasphemy. They were predisposed. They had a presupposition in their minds that Jesus was a mere man. And for him to claim to be God, it was blasphemy, deserving of death. Were they right that Jesus was a mere man, then their evaluation would have been correct. But they were wrong. He was God, and he proved himself God on so many fronts. And oftentimes, you know, people ask, well, how can you show that Jesus is God from the scriptures? (laughs) It's not hard to a person that isn't pre doesn't have a predisposition to reject him. That isn't doesn't presuppose him not to be God to the sincere inquirer. It's not hard to show. But it does say there's a way which seems right to a man. But the end is death. This seemed right to them that he was committing blasphemy, that he was deserving death. But it wasn't right. They were wrong. They were wrong. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. We can see that in uh, Matthew chapter 7. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So for most people... This broad road seems like the right one. And it's the narrow road that seems like the wrong one. And so they choose the broad road because it seems right. But Jesus teaches the end is destruction. There's only one way to God. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God, to the father, but through me. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's what he said. And I find it amazing there are people that believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but they don't accept that. He can't be both. Either that statement, those statements be true, or he's not good. Both can't be true. Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not good. It says in Psalm uh, 19, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's how valuable the word of God is. We live in a world filled with illusion, filled with lies, filled with what seems right, filled with with paths that seem like they're the right path, but they're the way of death. How do we know that? Because God leaves us his testimony. He gives us the map. He shows us the light of his word. The question is, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? That's the question. But we, ought, we, we, we presuppose things. If you presuppose things, you will not come to the truth. You have to take all presuppositions, throw it out the window, and rely solely on the Word of God. And if we understand it, great. If we don't, we still trust it. Because God is true. Let me illustrate with a story. I got this from Robert. We were talking about the subject, and he graciously sent this to me. A man walked into a psychiatrist's office and insisted that he was dead. See, that was his presupposition. I'm dead. And we're not talking about dead spiritually. We're just talking about he thought he was dead. After several sessions with this, quote, dead man, the psychiatrist at last thought he had hit on a solution to this patient's problems. He assigned him to go to the library and write an extensive paper on the characteristics of dead people. The doctor did not hear from him for several months. Then one day he received in the mail a large manuscript. The fruits of his patients labors on the topic. One of his main conclusions was interest, was the interesting fact that dead people don't bleed. Overjoyed, the psychiatrist called the man in for an appointment. As soon as the man arrived, he began once again to proclaim that he was dead. <laughs> he still believed that he was dead. At that moment, the doctor whipped out a large hat pin and pricked the man's finger. Blood rushed out profusely. There now, what conclusion do you draw from that? Asked the doctor. After a moment's hesitation, yet without blinking, the patient looked at the doctor straight in the eye and exclaimed, Well, what do you know? Dead people do bleed. (laughs) Likewise, in spite of all the evidence, the minds of sinful men and women cling to twisted views like a child clutching a favorite toy. We change all evidence to fit our presuppositions. You see, he changed all that. I guess dead people do believe. Why? Because that was his presupposition and he wasn't about to change it. And so we have to, to be honest, we have to realize we do have presuppositions and they have to be rooted out one by one as we read, study, and are confronted with the word of God. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Get out those presuppositions. And I was, you know, there's something going on in the news I want to talk about a little bit. And I had to ask myself, You know, because, you know, I think to be honest and sincere, we have to admit that we could be wrong in our viewpoints on certain things. I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith, but our views of certain instances and how we perceive them, you know, how they seem to us. and, And where's my conclusion coming from? So you'll see that in a minute. It says in Proverbs 14, 15 and 16, the naive believes everything. But the prudent man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. So it really calls for us to stop, slow down and consider issues. Consider circumstances. Consider some of the trials and troubles in our lives and in the world and in our friends and families and neighbors. Consider them in light of the word of God. And. Ask yourself, is there another way to look at this that doesn't violate scripture, that actually is supported by scripture? Am I looking at things in a, in a true way, truthfully? Presupp- uh, presupposition. What are some of our presuppositions? Okay. So I, I, I hope I don't. Well, I don't know. I might hit some some nerves, but uh, we'll see. Presuppose. We pre- presuppose that someone coming out to church regularly even only for one single meeting a week, that they must be a Christian and we're afraid to ask questions. Presuppose. Oh, yeah, they're here every Sunday. They must be a Christian. We've never asked them. They must be a Christian, right? Well, if we hold the word of God up to that presupposition, what does it say? It says, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then, so what what did it seem like to them? I think they were being sincere. Not all supernatural events come from God, you know. Read the book of Job. It seemed as though they were Christians. It seemed as though they were saved and probably it didn't seem like that only to them, but to those that knew them. Oh, yeah, that person, he casts out demons who can do that. But of God. Right. And then Jesus said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. It seems like that, but that's not the case. So, we have to take our presupposition and bring it under the light of the Word of God. You know, just because a person seems like they're a Christian doesn't mean they are. And through the years, if you've been a Christian for years, you've heard testimony of people that thought they were Christian for years. Then they really got saved. And then they hold the testimony you know, back then I knew I really wasn't right with God. And sometimes they say, back then I thought I was, but I didn't understand what being a Christian really is. I remember the story of my Christian, or my sister, prayed for her for 18 years before she got saved, and my cousin came to visit me. And my cousin was younger than me, and he always looked up to me, just because I was an older cousin. And um, back in the day, I was a bodybuilder, and he was impressed by that. Next time he saw me, like five years later, I was saved, and I had shrunken down a bit. And he was big and huge, you know, and he goes, what happened to you? You know, then I told him I got saved. I was a Christian and my priorities had changed, you know, and then he said, oh, I'm a Christian, too. You know, and then he began to say that, say, you're a Christian. Now, my sister, who wasn't a Christian, said, you're not a Christian. Yes, I am. You're not a Christian. How do you know? Let me tell you what a Christian is. And then she told him and she was right. She told him the gospel She told him how a Christian should be living, what he shouldn't be doing, if he really believed that. I'm going, wow. I didn't know she took it all in, but she did. She was right. So, um, I forgot where I was going with that. Seeming. Oh Excuse me. Getting older. (laughs) Uh, My sister, so my sister, later on, she came to know the Lord. Um, But it was 18 years, 18 years until she finally had her eyes opened. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So my cousin thought he was saved. But he wasn't. Now, since then, he's gotten saved. And many of his family members have. They live in Texas, and so it's a joy to know that they know the Lord at this point. But back then they didn't. And my sister, she wasn't. She didn't. She wasn't. Didn't have a presupposition that he was saved just because he said he was saved. She looked at his life, you know, and she saw the contradiction, and she pointed it out to him. I didn't have to, which was nice. <laughs> in, in Brazil, there's a missionary that um, that we knew there. And this fellow was a Bible teacher. And he would teach the scriptures um, very analytically. And quite frankly, uh, as I look back, he was very accurate in how he taught the scriptures. But it didn't seem like there was any passion in his life for the Lord. Uh, and maybe he was just a sullen personality. I don't know. Just, it just, I always had a question, but I just accepted his testimony because he knew the gospel. He understood the word of God. But I can remember one time we were talking and we were out on a um a young people's outing and it was like an amusement park, probably the only one in Brazil at the time. And we took a bunch of young people there. And he's and it was time to eat, so we sat down in this restaurant and he had a bottle of beer, he set it on the table, glasses, and I'm thinking, What are you doing? you know. I mean, I know Christians can, you know, drink a glass of beer. And scripture says don't get drunk, but glass of beer doesn't say you can't. So I so I don't have any kind of Legalistic views about, but I certainly do understand the Scriptures talk about not stumbling other people. And we had a lot of young people with us. And so we were talking, and you know, he said his life is different. It used to be that he was the most drunken sailor in the Australian Navy for 11 no nine years. Nine years. And every time he got drunk in a bar, there'd be a brawl, and he'd be in the middle of it. So he was a fighting drunk. Funny thing about it was that he believes that he was saved since he was 11 years old. So all that time that he was a drunken sailor, he believed that he was saved. And I'm thinking, hold the word of God up to that one. You know, it says, I had somebody in my home not too long ago, I asked him, can a Christian sin? Yes. Can a Christian practice sin? Yes. I go, no. Yes. No. That's what you're going through in 1 John, right? The tests of life. What seems... And yet, what's true? God gives us tests. Why does He give us those tests? So that we might be able to help people with those tests. If someone's on their way to hell and we don't see that, how are we going to come alongside them and point them out, point out to them based on the Word of God, say, See where it says you're heading? God's given you an opportunity to repent and go to heaven through Jesus Christ. See, how can we do that if we just, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, good. And we walk away. Watch where they're headed. So, very, very important um, to care for someone by not just accepting what seems to be right, but take a closer look at the Word of God. And so I asked him, and, and so I said, well, what makes you think you were saved during those years of debauchery? He says, well, you know, I made a profession when I was young. And so I knew I was saved because, um, because when, I, when I did go out and get drunk, I felt bad the next day. You know, I was convicted. You know, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. So I must have had the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking, hold it up to the Word of God. Okay, let me ask you this question. Does the Holy Spirit ever convict non-saved people or un- unsaved people, non-Christians? Do they, does the Holy Spirit ever convict those people? He didn't answer me. Well, I know I was saved. Because the obvious answer is, yeah, that's what he does. That's how he brings people to the Savior, by showing them that they need a Savior. By showing them their sins and making them feel bad about their sins. And then they respond, yeah, you're right, God, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. So had he he, uh, he honestly, without presupposition, considered... That maybe he didn't get saved. He might have gotten saved later. Some people don't know when they got saved. That's not the point. You know. Um, The point is. That if a person practices sin. It says they don't know the Lord. (laughs) That doesn't mean I can't commit a sin. But it's like stumbling and falling. You know. I stumble. I fall. And maybe I stumble myself. Trip myself and fall. But I get up. The general tenor of my life is I'm walking on my two feet. Now, if I was crawling all fours, and that was the general tenor, and every once in a while I stood up, then you'd think something was wrong there. It's a question of practice. So to be sincere and honest, we have to evaluate you know what's true in the light of God's Word. Without presuppositions. So, I mean I think the evidence leans more toward that he wasn't saved at that time when he was a drunken sailor for nine years or whatever. It says, uh, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for the purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin his seed abides in him and he cannot sin don't dissect that verse you know don't take that he cannot sin and put it as a sentence all by itself it's in light and in context of he can't practice sin just can't as a christian you can't practice sin the holy spirit won't let you you'll be miserable most miserable person on earth is a christian out of fellowship with god Okay, he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And I think, Noed, you talked about that. A distinctive of a Christian is that they love other Christians. I was on the plane coming, going there, and I was walking back getting some ice i like chewing on ice and i noticed there was a placard back there said pray for us and there was a picture of a girl and it said missions and it said some country in africa and i said who's that who's that girl i forget the name um i think it was naomi that your daughter she goes oh no that's the other girl's daughter i said she's on a mission oh yeah i said she christian oh yeah she's christian we do a we do a bible study we're a a group of Christian, they call, them, they call themselves WINGS, Women in God's Service. And they're stewardesses that have formed a Bible study. I think they have seen five or six people saved already. And she told me the different cities they're in. And so the lady up in the front of the plane was the one leading the study, and the one in the back of the plane had the daughter on the mission trip. She lit up like a light bulb. Boy, you should have seen the conversation after that. It's like, you know, the the love for the brethren. And There's another Christian there, and they're reaching out to lost souls, and people are getting saved, and... Her daughter's on a mission trip. A lot of young people excited. I thought, wow, that warmed my heart. That was a good start to the vacation. <laughs> you know, love of the brethren. Okay, so what else do we presuppose? We pre- presuppose that because someone says they are saved, they must be. And should be embraced immediately, no questions asked. You know, oh, they said they're a Christian. <laughs> um, I remember when I got saved. And uh, I got saved on a Thursday at Chabot. And on a Sunday, I was at Fairhaven Bible Chapel. And Rick Bellis led me to the Lord, and he went around introducing me to people. And it took me about two or three people to finally figure this out. People were asking me, oh, are you a Christian? Yeah. Well, tell me, how did you become a Christian? Oh, let me tell you. And it just happened on Thursday, and I understood the gospel because I was clinging to that for my salvation. You know, it was really clear to me, crystal clear. So I shared with them the gospel. You know how I was deserving to go to hell. I knew it. God showed it to me. I said I believed it, but I wasn't doing anything about it, which showed I really didn't believe it in that sense of the word. Realized realized that Jesus came down from heaven, took on a body, took my sins, died on the cross for me. Offers me free uh, uh, salvation, eternal life is a free gift, forgiveness of my sins. And when he shared that to me with me, I just it was crystal clear that was the truth. So I accepted the Lord. And so I would share that story. Ah, oh, okay. And they shook my hand and we had a conversation. And then the next person he introduced me to. Oh, you're a Christian. Tell me how you got saved. <laughs> okay, I went through the story again. And then. Um, the third time I think it was clear, you know, you know, introduce me here. Let me tell you how I got saved because <laughs> I knew they were going to ask. I had five or six people ask me within a space of maybe thirty five minutes. Why? Because we learned that if you're really going to care for someone and they come into your midst and say, I'm a Christian. And you just accept it without question. You're not helping them. You're not helping them at all, because if they don't know the Lord they're going to be confirmed that in their mind, they may be confirmed, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Everybody accepts me as a Christian. I must, this is, must be what it is to be a Christian. When they've got no clue, they don't, that's not what it is to be a Christian. And you can't do that without dialogue. You can't do that without talking to people. Which reminds me, I saw a video, if you want it afterwards, let me know. It was about, the, it was about these things right here. Really good video. It has a couple of bad words, but not too bad. But it's a look up. Look up. And it talks about multimedia that these days, how we're looking down and, and how much we're losing in interpersonal relationships. And this is a social network, we're losing it. It's not social at all. It keeps us from being social. But it's a very good video. Ask me afterwards, I'll send it to you. It's really good. Um, you can't get there without dialogue. You can't get there without asking questions. And some people are a little offended at questions. But I've never met a true Christian who was really offended at the questions. Like when they asked me, tell me how you got saved. I thought, oh, great. This is good. Let me tell you, you know, I like to tell people I came to know the Lord. They know the Lord. You know, there was that love of the brethren. And even when I'm saved, people, what happened to you? Well, let me tell you, you know, it should be a joy. So but when we ask questions, sometimes we have to go deeper than tell me how you got saved, you know, because, oh, yeah, I accepted the Lord went up to an altar call. And ever since then, I've been going to church. Oh, great. Let's go eat. It's like sometimes, you know, it seems as though that's, that's enough, but it's not. I had somebody over our house and um, uh, a little bit insight into Calvary. They, they thought um, they had a couple objections. One of them was that if you get saved at Calvary, then you're sort of accepted. If you get saved somewhere else, like before you get to Calvary, then you sort of looked at with suspicion. I go, really? Yeah, that's what I feel. I go, what gives you that impression? Well, people ask questions. <laughs> like, tell me how you got saved, you know. And how has your life changed since then? Oh, okay. And, uh, is that it? And they said one other thing. Oh, yeah, um... You guys preach that, you know, fruits are evidence in a person's life that they're really saved. And if they don't have fruit, then they sort of make you feel like they're questioning whether you're really saved or not. What does the word says? The word says in Matthew seven, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree, bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you, so then you will know them by their fruits. So, I mean, excuse me, but this is the only, the only way I have to determine the truth. And if God says do it this way, well, that's the way I'm going to do it. Well, what if you offend people? You know, God's not going to behold me. If, I mean, I, I want to talk in a gentle and loving way. But if I'm not doing it God's way, I'm not doing it God's way. And he covers all the bases. When he says do it this way, this is the absolute best. So any objection you might have, God has already taken that into consideration. You know, ask questions. Look for fruit. Um, and and I, I propose this illustration. And, and it's interesting because, you know, people had objections. The Pharisees, the religious hypocrites of the time, had objections that Jesus ate and drank with publicans and sinners. And his response was, the people that are well, they don't seek a doctor. I came to save the lost. Where do, do you imagine you'd see sick people in a hospital, the doctor's office, right? So would you fault the doctor for being among sick people? No. They faulted Jesus, man of God, for being with sinners. Well, that's who he came to save. He didn't came to save the righteous that didn't believe they were sinners. He came to save sinners who admitted, knew they were sinners and needed salvation. And that's where he would be found. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so I I likened it to, especially the elders, and, and really it goes down to the saints as well. We really are doctors of the soul. Everyone that knows the gospel here, that knows the way of salvation, should care about his neighbor, his brother, his sister, his co-worker, his fellow student, to the point of wanting to see and make sure that they have eternal life, that they know the Savior. And so it's like a spiritual doctor. You know, If we're going to care for people, we have to see it that way. Jesus was a spiritual doctor, and if we're followers of Jesus, we are spiritual doctors. So there was an objection there that we asked questions. And so I thought of the illustration in my mind, there's two ways you can look at it. There's one way is uh, you go into a doctor's office and you, you know, you're going to a new doctor now because you didn't like the old one. So you go into a new one and you walk in there and you say and he says, well, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel fine. You in good health. Yeah, great. All right. Let's celebrate. Finally, somebody came 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 you know, through those doors that they're perfectly fine. They don't need to be checked. Oh, man, this makes my job so much easier. Let's go out to have a bite to eat. What kind of doctor would that be? I mean, if it's a new doctor, they're going to say, you know, how are you feel? I feel fine. You think you're in good health? Yeah. Well, let me run a few checks just to make sure. They always say that. Oh, you doctors, you always like to do those tests. That's one thing I have against you doctors. You're always asking questions. You know, how's my liver? You know, you always want me to breathe and you put that cold thing on my back. You know, you doctors are mean. I don't like this place. I mean, what kind of doctor would that be? And yet they expect that from a spiritual doctor. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, great, wonderful. One, give me a hug. Yeah, everybody, this is a Christian. Everybody accept him. No, if we really care for him, we want to know for sure. Just a couple questions. Tell me how you know that you came to know the Lord. You know? Might take a couple more. Really? Do you believe you deserve to go to hell? Do you really? Well, no, I don't. Hmm. So then I have to, you, it, don't go by appearances what seems to be that answer. What does that answer seem like it's saying? It could be saying a couple things. Because when, we say, when I say a question, I like to be careful with words. Sometimes I feel it that, but I like to be. Um, do you deserve to go to hell? As a Christian, I am saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay my penalty. But do I deserve to go to hell? Yes, I do. Still a fact. I still deserve it. Am I going? No, I'm not. Am I not going because I'm good? Nope, I'm not good. Is there anything in me good? Nope, except for Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? So that's why I know I'm going to heaven. But not everybody understands the words the way I ask them. Do you believe you deserve to go to hell? Some people reinterpret that. Am I going to hell? So it requires a follow up question if I'm going to be discerning. How are they interpreting the question? You know? Some people interpret it. Um, do I deserve to go to hell? In other words, now that Jesus died for my sins, they'll say no. But they're not understanding the question. So I have to ask a further question. So sometimes it's easy to ask the question, well, before you got saved, back then, were you really? And I try to put it in a way to try to help them say the wrong answer. Because if they know the right answer, they're not going to balk at that. I said, well, do you, re- do you believe that before you got saved, you really, back then, you were bad enough to go to hell? You know, I may paint it out real bad. Well, not really. Okay, now the truth comes out because I've made it easy to come out. Right? Well, if you didn't believe that you deserved to go to hell before you got saved, well, then you, you didn't get saved. Because you can't get saved without believing that. So sometimes you can ask right questions, knowing just to accept what seems to be right. It's easy, it's the easy way out. Looks good for my house. Are they safe? Oh, yeah, they said they were saved. Well, did you ask them? Oh, yeah, I asked them. What they say? Ah, oh, they said they got saved. Well,. Did you ask them if they deserve to go to hell? Yep, they said yes. Really? So sometimes it requires further questions. Don't just take what seems to be right. And, and mind you, this is in the name of love and care for a soul. I, I told that individual that had those objections, you know one of the greatest things I fear? I fear having to stand before God and next to me somebody that's going to be condemned to hell. And I have to answer why when I saw very, incline, very clear indications based on the word of God that he really didn't know the Savior and I accepted him as a brother in Christ. He accepted me. Why didn't he tell me? You know, I don't have to answer for that. So if I, in love, try to find out where the person is spiritually that's the best way i can help them i can't help them by putting blinders on and just accept what's seemingly true we see that happening in the world today um for example um what is seemingly true in in this country do you believe you live in a free country this is a free country do you believe it's a free country Seems like it is sometimes our freedom is so limited and and, and every day it seems like more and more is taken away and I like reading the news. And so a couple was fined thirteen thousand dollars. This was like 18 hours from yesterday morning. I read it for refusing to host a gay wedding at their venue. Couple fined for refusing to host a gay wedding shuts down venue. Christian couple fined $13,000 for refusing to host a lesbian wedding on their New York farm has decided to close the venue rather than violate their religious beliefs. Cynthia and Robert Gifford decided not to host ceremonies anymore, other than those already scheduled. Alliance defending freedom attorney James Whatever told this. News agency, since the order essentially compelled them to do all ceremonies or none at all, they have chosen the latter in order to stay true to their convictions, even though it will likely hurt their business in the short run. They even offered to do the reception, they just wouldn't do the wedding. Fine, $13,000. Is that a free country? Not necessarily. Seems like it is, but look deeper. Look deeper. You know, it looks good from my house. If it's not in our face, somehow it's easy to forget. Um, I was looking up abortion, you know, because we're hearing a lot in the news about ISIS. We're hearing about Ukraine, 2,000, over 2,000 people killed in the Ukraine. Start reading Russia's version of the story and then the West version of the story. And this is what you learn. For one, I learned something a long time ago in Brazil. We don't know anything. Unless you know the word of God, then you know everything, everything you need to know. But when it comes to what you see on the TV, you only see what they tell you. And you don't know if that's true or not. And oftentimes it's we have this word. There's a spin on it. They always put a spin on it. Right. And so once you start looking at the spin from the other side, you can start to see how how things happen and how they get things to happen. You know, for a long time, Russia said, oh, we don't have any Russians in there. We're not crossing the borders and all that stuff. And then slowly the story changes, you know. Well, we can't stop people in their own time from going over in there and helping for a, for a decision that they think's right. The next thing you know, there's indisputable evidence. Now it's going, well, who's giving advisors, you know, what Western advisors are over there in the Ukraine helping the Ukrainian government? So if you look at the Russian spin on it, they put a spin on it that justifies what they're doing. And, for, and Putin in Russia, he's waving a high tide of popularity with a nationalistic tendency over there. So he's, he's got a spin on it that they just, they're just they just eating it up. You know? And so we can see why things happen on that end. The question is, do you think we're not putting a spin on it? You know, everybody puts a spin on something. Everybody does. So what's the conclusion? One, God's in control of everything. Be careful what you approve of. You know, there's a verse, and and I know it's, it's, you you can take a verse that the context says one thing, but you can apply it in many different ways. It says to be careful that you don't condemn yourself in what you approve. When you swallow somebody's spin, you can say, yeah, you can take up that argument. and It happens all the time at my work, because I I live in a political environment. And you can endorse something and condemn yourself in doing it, because the spin put on it, it really is a lie. You don't know what the truth is. Sometimes it's better just to stand back. You know what? That's the world. I'll deal with issues, injustice. I'm not. It's like the um, that latest case where the police officer shot a black man. You know. And I'm not so gullible to believe that there's no spin on either side. I don't. I just don't know. But everybody's you know up in arms as if they knew. You're for justice? Well, that's that's not how justice acts. You know, we don't know, and I'm not in the position to decide. So guess what? I'm out of it. I'm staying out of it. There's things we should stay out of, um, and there's things that we should speak up about. I think of um, abortion. You know, just to give you an idea of numbers. You know, we consider people, you know, bad, like Hitler. Bad. He's responsible. And these are rough numbers because you can't get, when your number's this big, you can't get down to very accurate details. But Hitler's more or less, they say, he's responsible for 11 million deaths. That's not to count. O- overall, I think, uh, in World War II, is 50 or 55 million deaths. But he's responsible for 11 million. And that's talking about um, non-combatants. The Holocaust and others that, um, that were killed. Stalin, 20 million. But the guy that holds the record, you know who that is, Mao Zedong. From 1958 to 62, in four years, he's responsible for 45 million deaths. There's about, I think we're borderline 30, 35 million population in California. That's just wipe out California, and probably another state. Well, since abortions have been legalized in the United States since 1973 from 1973 to 2011 over 53 million legal abortions 53 and they're non-combatants by the way you know it's sad and just to bring it closer to home in California 2011 they led the country with 181,730 181,000 murders 512, astronomical, I mean, huge numbers more than any other state. 512, um, they call them abortion facilities. They even have laws protecting these places. Protesters can't go within so many feet of these, you know, in certain states. So that's what we do. We protect the murderers, you know, and and it looks good for my house. I don't see it. 512 all over California, we lead the nation and we don't see it. Sometimes it's because we don't want to see it. And, you know, there's sometimes you can't do anything about it, and I am not condoning anything but obeying the laws of the land. I am. But let's not close our eyes. I mean, I had Christians that think somehow Christianity is parallel to patriotism, you know, and they put that high up patriot, you know. This is a God-fearing country. Well, just because they put God in God we trust on the dollar doesn't mean that's true. You know? And I think what we're seeing as the years go by is what Israel saw in the Old Testament. As they turned their backs on God, God allowed threats to come in and start taking away their prosperity and their peace. You know, And this is what's happening. So I'm not saying this to try to um, disturb you. What I'm saying is what seems to be true isn't always true. And we as Christians should look through the word of God. And not be perturbed about what's going on out there that we can't do anything about, but when we deal with individuals, to deal with it, them truthfully, you know, and sincerely, and in love, point out what God wants us to point out. What really got me thinking about this whole thing is these um, more than 60,000 child migrants have arrived on the US Mexican border since October of last year. Sixty thousand. And tens of thousands never even make it that far. And they're often returned home to uh, existing violence and poverty compounded by debt and despair. And I don't know what your reaction is when you first when you do, if you read the no- news, if you find out about what do you think about that, you know, my first reaction is like Why did they let them across the border? You know? I mean, I'm all for immigrant. This country was based on immigrants. But there's a way to come in, and there's a right way and a wrong way. Legal way, illegal way. And then when I started reading this, I thought, maybe my thinking's not right. Because I was reading stories about how people were fighting to keep them in this country and give them a place. Let families take care of them. I'm thinking, why are they so... Adamant about that. Why are they so fighting for that? And then I, I you know, I, I, it perturbs me when I can't rationalize something. You know, and I gotta fit this in my mind somehow. They can, and I have to be honest. Am I thinking wrong about this? And so I had to honestly evaluate. Why is it that we don't let them in? Why is it that there are people that are fighting to keep them out? And I can't help but ask the question: Is it because we don't want to share? Is it because we feel like somehow we let the whole country into this, the whole world into this country that somehow there won't be enough for us? They'll destroy the infrastructure that we just can't handle it. All these excuses. They'll somehow jeopardize our way of life, our standard of living. You know? And I have to, after I go, well, you know what? I have to admit the possibility. Maybe deep down inside, I have a sinful flesh like anybody else. Maybe I do think that way. Maybe these other people are right. What's right? What seems right? You know, and it's easy to jump on the bad one. Well, we they ought to obey the law. That's illegal, so we shouldn't let it happen. Well, abortion's legal. What does that have to do with any right and wrong that God places before us? And so when I read this article, it it began to make me think, what would I do? What would I do if I was in that place? And there's a direct scripture I think that's, I'll get through it real quick because I know the time's running out. It says, when five-year-old Georgina first saw her older brother and cousin descend from the bus that brought them back from Mexico, she let out a joyful scream. But her aunt sobbed and her mother couldn't bear to look. For them, the return of Ishmael and Abraham, just eight days en route to the United States, marks a quick and painful defeat for their family. They had mortgaged their home to pay $8,000 for a coyote to smuggle the cousins to the United States. Okay, does everybody know what a coyote is? It's a slang term for these people that smuggle other people across the border, right? They're, They're human traffickers. And so, why did they go? I mean, we'd like to put a spin on it. Oh, they just want a prosperous life here in America. And they want to get away from poverty. It's not the case here, and it's not the case for about 60%. It says the teens left El Salvador after gangs had repeatedly threatened them with forced recruitment outside their schools. They're from San Martin, a district east of the capital that's home to a turf war between the Mara Salvatracha and the 18th Street gangs. And so the gangs are forced recruitment. They're grabbing up the girls and I can't say what their plans or what they do with them, but um, they live in fear. They live in fear. And so these coyotes offer them, we'll take them to the United States because they'll take them in and they'll, they'll be safe. And so it's out of concern for their, for their safety, a lot of these people are trapping. And so they, the, the, the southern frontier in Mexico is very loosely guarded. It's heavily forested. Some places they're just a concrete monument there, no fence or anything. And they just walk across so these coyotes can get them across. And then they take a train up through middle Mexico called the Beast. Some of them ride on top of the train. A lot of them ride on top of the train, you know, just to, to get across Mexico, hoping to make to the U.S. border. And that whole route's filled with gangs, drug lords, and they're out to take advantage of these people, kidnap them, use them for ungodly things, you know. And so they, they have this this journey that's filled with danger. And so, if they get caught by the Mexican authorities, which up till recently, up till the United States put the thumb to them, they haven't been really uh, hard pressed to crack down on the migrants because they just consider they're passing through. They're just passing through. It's not a security risk, they're just heading to the United States. So, they didn't do a problem. Now, they're putting up bioscanners, they're putting up all kinds of stuff because the United States is helping them do it because obviously there's a large constituency that don't want them to get to our borders. So they get caught, they get sent back, now they're in the same situation. And their parents have to face, well, now what do we do? Now we're perhaps broke, we don't have a house anymore. Same gang members live down the street, same threats. So they either try it again, you know, or what? And I'm thinking, there's another side to the story. What seems to be true isn't always true. We just hear one, one side of it. It depends on if people are for it against it, the spin we hear. So looking at through the Word of God, and, and I'm thinking, well, how would I apply this? Does, is there some scripture? And, and, um, and, and I happen to think, you know, we have this all going on in the Middle East with uh, ISIS, the Muslims, you know, the uh, radical jihadists want to take over the world. And, you know, they think we're the great Satan. Did you know that? We're the great Satan. Well, we're supposed to be a Christian country. You know, and I can't give account for anybody but myself, but um, I think we give them plenty of ammunition to use against us. I think Satan has a field day. You know, they look at us, hey, just watch the TV. You know, see somebody get sued because they don't allow a gay wedding on their property. You know, um, discrimination against, you know, blatant sin. They call it discrimination. You know, they look at the abortions and we're like 53 million and in the time that we legalize abortion. You know, We give them plenty, plenty of ammunition for Satan to CC. They're the great Satan. I'm not saying they're any better. But I think it would be a lot better if we take away that that ammunition, that excuse that we give to them. You know? um, I think if we acted more like Christians, you know, if we were more active and vocal about the Word of God and about our faith... I think we, there would be, we wouldn't have so many people not liking Americans. <laughs> you know? It says here, it says, When it was evening, the disciples came to him. The place is desolate and the time has already passed. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy some food for themselves. You know, it's like those immigrants. Send them away. Tell them to go back home and get something to eat. You know? Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. You see, they didn't think they had enough for themselves and everybody else. And that's probably a lot of Americans think like that. We can't let open borders. Why? Well, we don't have enough. Well, here's what Jesus said. He said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the fish. or He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over over the uh, leftover of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 4000 men who ate aside from women and children. You see, if we really followed the Lord. And obeyed the Lord. He would provide. He would provide all we need and more. They ended up with more than they had before they gave. See? And so I came to the conclusion, you know what? Maybe I need to change my view about some things. Maybe I need to be more Christ like. I definitely want to. Because I think that's how we're going to see the Lord work in our midst. We want to see miracles, we need to be more Christ like. Not work off what seems to be right, but what's right from the word of God. And you know, um, I don't apologize for asking anybody that says they're a Christian how they came to know the Lord. I don't apologize to anybody for wanting to hear the gospel from them. Because I want to help them. And that's not to apologize for. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your example. We need to be reminded often, Lord, that... Um, to follow you, it takes more than just to say that we believe you. Lord, we just pray that you'd find practical ways to demonstrate Christ um, in any way we can, Lord. And if you're calling us to greater areas or spheres of service, make it clear to us, we want to obey you, we want to see you glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Oh, before I stop, I have one more thing to say. I wanted to bring this up real quick. Um, What got me going on this subject was... um, Something I saw, you know, I've posted things about Buster, you know, about Hunter on, the, on, the, um, on Facebook. And so every once in a while, I'll look at the people who likes, who doesn't like, and I'll sometimes deviate and surf it a little bit. And I saw, uh, I saw one of the Christians that I know, you know, s- s- this girl named Silas, what is it? Miley Cyrus, something, whatever her name is. Anyway, she's in the news a lot. And so you can't avoid seeing her in the news a lot. And what you see is not good. So she got an award at the MTV Video Award. And she had this homeless guy, 22-year-old guy, accept her award. And he accepted it in the name of 1.6 million homeless people that are lost, starving, and uh, something else. And he says, I know because I'm one of them. Well, it turns out that somebody looked into it. The guy had a warrant out for his arrest. And so... She had to help them through that, you know. Um, but somebody, some of this Christian people put, they like that. I like it. You know Facebook when you like something? You know, you, you have to consider what other people think when they see that you like something. Because that's like endorsing Miley Cyrus or whatever her name is. And if you read anything on her, it's anything of it, but just, it's, 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 how can I say it? I wouldn't want to associate myself with what she does. I don't think any Christian would, if they just look into it, but they like that one thing. And when you look into it, out of 1.6 million, she couldn't find one that didn't have a warrant out for their arrest. She has to pick that one, you know. And her mother said this, made this comment. She's of the Christian faith. Did you know that? 2008, she said that in her interview. In the same interview, it says that you know her place, favorite place to hang out is is this gay place in London because of the gay community and her gay friend and all this stuff. And it was like a hypocrisy, but. Um, her mother said, oh, this last four days, it's been a whirlwind of emotions or something like that. And then she said, she said, God gets the glory, but Miley gets the credit. And I'm thinking, how can you put those two together? So be careful what you like on Facebook, you know, because you can really ruin your testimony by what you like. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry.